0: Hi, on dark listeners, it's your host, Kasha Patel. I'm very excited about this episode because we're going to places I have never been, and I suspect maybe neither have you. We're going under a glacier, on top of a melting shelf of ice, and next to a falling hunk of glacier. What you just heard were audio clips that scientists are using to track changes in glaciers. Because of rising global temperatures, Antarctica and the Arctic are hot spots for research, no pun intended. NASA predicts by the year 2100, ice melt from the polar caps will play a large part in raising our sea level by at least 26 inches. That's enough to cause major problems for coastal cities. Now, researchers are monitoring the health of these regions in many ways. They can travel there to take measurements, but That can be inefficient and being around large icebergs that can fall at any moment can be dangerous. They can analyze satellite imagery, but since the relevant satellites only pass over occasionally, say once every 10 days, they might miss data for an important event. In other words, we kind of have a limited amount of continuous information of how fast these glaciers are shrinking, especially on a daily time scale. Fixing these data limitations can help scientists refine computer models of sea ice loss and improve researchers' understanding of the glaciers. Then they can better answer questions like, are the glaciers melting as fast as predicted? And maybe even, can we do anything to slow down the melting? Well, it turns out you can actually track changes like mass and shape in glaciers by listening to them. I was surprised by this, and So was researcher Julien Chapeau, a professor of geophysics at the University of Texas, El Paso.
1: This study was actually a bit of an accident. Uh, We weren't specifically looking for this at all. Uh, And our goal was to to attempt to determine um, crust and mantle properties under the ocean, so under the ice shelf.
0: Chapeau is interested in the Ross Ice Shelf, which is the largest ice shelf in Antarctica, about the size of France. He was working on understanding large, destabilizing, earthquake-like vibrations under the shelf. He placed 34 seismometers to monitor any vibrations.
1: Instead, what we found, just by listening, were these these strange frequency patterns that sort of had this dissonant sort of melody to them.
0: This noise, which sounds like a didgeridoo to me, occurs when wind whips over the peaks and dunes of the ice sheet. The wind sends vibrations down through compressed ice crystals in the snowbed, which... Chaput's seismographs pick up. To be clear, though, if you went and stood on the Ross Ice Shelf, this wouldn't be the sound you hear. These noises are just barely too low pitch for the human ear to pick up. Chaput alters the clips to bring them into a frequency we can hear. One way to do this is to speed them up. We can do this when we record ourselves and speed it up until we sound like a chipmunk and we all laugh with our friends because don't we sound silly. Chaput learned that these frequency patterns, these melodic tones, reacted to changes happening in the surrounding environment, like a melting event. Some of his instruments actually recorded a melting event on the Ross Ice Shelf in January 2016. Let's take a listen. Each second represents one day of seismic data. It starts out normal, then once the melting starts, the audio clip will start to slow down and become quieter until the melting is over. And here's something interesting. Once the melting event ended, the tune of the glaciers seems to have changed.
1: So the fact that we can understand what they're doing physically on the scale of minutes with, with just by listening to them sing like this is sort
0: of an invaluable uh, asset. But now let's take this one step further. What if you could quantify how much the glacier melted? You take the sounds and convert them into specific numbers, like how many inches of the glacier is melting, or how big of a slab of ice just fell into the water. That's what researchers at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography in San Diego are working on. And to do this, they're going underneath the glacier. Believe it or not, that sound you just heard was bubbles under a glacier, thousands of bubbles maybe hundreds of thousands of bubbles. We don't quite know. And that's what research oceanographer Grant Dean is trying to find out. He's been in the field of underwater acoustics for 35 years, focusing the last decade on ambient noise in Arctic regions, like that audio clip you just heard from Svalbard, Norway.
2: My first reaction when I first listened to the sounds was, there's a problem, They can't possibly be this noisy. It was incredibly noisy. I've listened to a lot of underwater sounds in in the course of my career. I'd never heard anything like this. And it was as noisy as an intense storm, but it was a sunny day with no wind or waves. And I was absolutely stunned. And I I thought, this is amazing.
0: Unlike Shapu's eerie sound of the melting glacier that was sped up, this audio clip is not altered. These are noises we would hear if we were underwater, right at the boundary where ice meets the ocean.
2: Glacier ice is full of ancient air bubbles, and those bubbles slowly make their way in the ice down to the ocean, and then they meet the water, and the ice melts, and the gas is released explosively into the water, and that makes little popping noises. Our task is to take the sound of each of those bubbles and use it to count how many bubbles are being released into the water at any given moment. If we can count those bubbles and we know how many of them are in the ice, we can figure out how quickly the ice is melting.
0: But how do you go from sounds to numbers? How do you get real scientific insight?
2: Ah, well, that's the
0: magic. To do that, Dean took cubes of pressurized ice, melted them in a lab, and listened to the sounds. He used that data to create a mathematical model to learn how things like bubble size and gas pressure affect the sound and therefore their count.
2: We've been able to figure that out. We now know how the sounds depend on those variables.
0: But figuring out the bubbles is actually only one piece of the equation that contributes to ice loss. Between those bubbles popping, there are literally blocks of ice falling into the ocean. This is called calving. If you're listening to this podcast through headphones, you'll be able to hear it better because it's a low, subtle rumble in the recording. But if you're standing right beside that falling block of ice, it would sound like a wrecking ball smashing through a house. Dean works with Oscar Glavatsky, who works in underwater acoustics at Scripps.
3: We are focused on the interaction between the falling blocks of ice uh, with the ocean surface.
0: Glavatsky is able to tell how big a piece of ice is, and even how it fell based off of the noise. Here's what it sounds like when the ice is dropping from above. Here's what it sounds like when the ice is breaking off the glacier beneath the water and then rising up to the ocean surface. This spring, for a month and a half, Klavatsky and his colleagues are heading back to Svalbard to record and retrieve more data to refine their techniques for measuring bubbles and calving. And some of the audio data taken over the past year is actually waiting for him on a memory card inside an underwater microphone 30 meters deep. He'll literally dive down and retrieve it.
3: We cannot just use uh, some fancy equipment that can send send data uh, because there are icebergs everywhere. So everything that is close to the ocean surface can be literally smashed by the, by the iceberg, by the, by, by the ice. So everything needs to be close to the bottom, maybe not so deeply because we are talking about like 20, 30 meters that we can reach easily by, by diving there.
0: Wow. Does that make you nervous that your data is just floating out there? <laughs> that part seems more daunting to me than the analysis part is retrieving the data.
3: You can, you can dive there and, and discover that your buoy is like in, in pieces or, or even don't, don't find it.
0: Oh, man. Well, good luck to you this spring.
3: <laughs> yeah, I, thanks. I hope it will be fine.
0: Next, we're gonna keep with the water theme. We're going to take a deep dive into New England's marine Serengeti. Taking us there is reporter Daniel Hentz. Let's take a listen.
4: 150 miles southeast of Cape Cod, there's this area of ocean roughly the size of Connecticut. Three canyons and four underwater mountains hide thousands of feet below the surface, and few land dwellers know that this pocket of the Atlantic is actually a superhighway for animal traffic. Everything from the huge sperm whale, to fleets of common dolphins and sharks, to the vibrant Atlantic puffin, all gather to feast in one pocket of ocean. Here, rich nutrients drive in schools of fish and plankton, that then beget larger predatory fish and filter feeders. Your ears don't deceive you. Those are the sounds of humpback whales, one of the many types of large marine mammals roaming through this same area. Recordings captured by high-frequency acoustic technologies used by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. In 2016, President Obama designated this area a National Marine Monument under the Antiquities Act. This is the act that allows Presidents to set aside wilderness areas in the name of our national heritage. Scientists have lovingly referred to it by the names Serengeti of the Sea and the unsung treasure of New England's waters. It's called the Northeast Canyons and Seamounts Marine National Monument. And today, it's under threat of losing its protected status. At the monument's inception, there was immediate pushback from local fishing advocates, many of whom believed prior regulations were enough to protect the area. And then former Secretary of Interior, Ryan Zinke, strongly recommended the monument's designation be removed to make way for commercial fishing, which some experts warn would allow resource extraction, including drilling for natural gas buried deep within each of the four seamounts. The monument appeared as one of 78 environmental regulation rollbacks pushed for by President Trump. To date, 47 rollbacks have been completed. As the United States' first North Atlantic marine monument, the Northeast Canyons and Seamounts area is a battleground for overlapping and conflicting views on what it would mean to protect and manage our ocean's resources in this way. For scientists like Peter J. Oster, the designation protects a cornucopia of underwater life, one of the only refuges in the North Atlantic that is still seeing robust levels of biodiversity. Peter is the Professor Emeritus of Marine Studies at the University of Connecticut. He's also Mystic Aquarium's senior research scientist.
5: I have been diving uh, in the area that is now the Northeast Canyons and Seamounts Marine National Monument since 1984.
4: Using a mix of crude and uncrude submersibles, he and his colleagues explored the monument's three canyons, Oceanographer, Gilbert, and Lydonia, which cut into the edge of our continental shelf, an area called the George's Bank. The seafloor slopes down more than 5,000 meters into the deep sea. But then, out of the gloom, four extinct volcanoes rise from the void. These are called seamounts.
5: Bear, uh, Physalia, Retriever, and Middleus, those are the names of the seamounts. I often describe these as like it's like climbing mountains from the top down. The mountain doesn't even start until 3,300 feet, 1,100 meters deep. Along the edges of these basalt, basaltic seamounts, there's these places for organisms to attach. These places uh, harbor deep-sea corals that you know, jut out from the, from the sides of the mountains or from the edges of the canyons, and they intercept food-laden currents.
4: It is this combination of location and habitat diversity that has helped to support some of the most divergent aquatic species in the Atlantic, and you don't need to be a diver to notice. In a recent study, researchers from the Anderson Cabot Center for Ocean Life at the New England Aquarium spotted more than 600 individuals, many whales and dolphins, in less than four hours while flying over the monument. Because the monument sits at the intersection of so many currents and upwellings, there's a huge influx of nutrients and phytoplankton. That bounty ripples up the food web and draws all kinds of marine life, including rare species like the Cuvier's beech whale, as you descend further to 500 feet and below, some of the more sedentary creatures begin to come into view, including 58 species of the world's rarest cold water corals, some of which are up to 4,000 years old. And like anywhere in the world, these corals play a special role in structuring the habitat of numerous deep water species.
5: Fishing gear dragged over the seafloor, whether it's even fixed gear or mobile gear, when they hit corals or very uh, fragile sponges, it knocks them over or tears them apart. They're highly sensitive to disturbance, and if disturbed, if you know these animals are, are killed, we're talking hundreds, if not over a thousand years, to fully recover, if they will recover.
4: Despite its size, the monument makes up only 1.5% of the US's exclusive economic fishing zones in the Atlantic. These are the boundaries offshore reserved for our National Fishing Fleet. So who exactly is fishing in this region? Well, there are only a few small commercial red crab and lobstering vessels that operate within this area. According to the 2016 mandate, these boats have more than 7 years to transition out of the monument's boundaries. On March 7, 2017, the Massachusetts Lobstermen Association filed a lawsuit against the federal government on behalf of five commercial industries. They objected to President Obama's use of the Antiquities Act, claiming it only applied to the land and unfairly usurps their ability to fish. In October, 2018, the case was struck down by District Court Judge James E. Boisberg, who declared the Antiquities Act had the precedent necessary to reserve aquatic wilderness as well. Others, like Bonnie Brady, who heads the Long Island Commercial Fishing Association, express a lingering fear. What if this isn't the last marine monument to prohibit New England fishers? The MLA did not respond for comment, but Janice Plant, the public affairs officer for the New England Fishery Management Council, was able to explain where some of the tensions may have arisen during this case, especially when it comes to resource management.
3: We already had restrictions within the monument area you know, that dealt with several of our fishery management plans. And the other thing is we were already in the process of developing this massive coral amendment that covered an area far greater than what the marine monument
4: covered. I mean, this is what we do. The council itself comprises experts at every echelon of the fishing industry. Some are marine scientists, while others are commercial fishermen. Plant herself was a journalist for a marine trade magazine, but all have a stake in the future of the region. She says it's not the monument's existence that unnerved the council members, but how it excluded them from the planning process.
3: We go through this arduous, rigorous process that's all based on the the best scientific information available and includes all stakeholders in the process.
4: The council derives its power from another law called the Magnuson-Stevens Act. This was created in the 1970s to curb overfishing by giving authority to local and regional regulators. When the seamounts became a national monument, that regulatory power passed to the Department of Interior and the Department of Commerce.
3: I think the initial concern was that this authority to manage the fisheries within our jurisdiction was being taken away from us. That took everyone a little bit by surprise.
5: Admittedly, it's tough to be a fisherman in New England.
4: That's Peter Oster again, the scientist from earlier
5: in the story. We keep falling back into a a hole of overfishing and overfished species, which then produces draconian regulations that everyone needs to abide by, so it's hard to keep a business.
4: But he also says the type of fishing practice in the seamounts was just too dangerous for the ecosystem there, and that drilling for oil would be even worse. So you have these two conflicting laws that aim towards a similar goal. The Magnuson-Stevens Act, which created regulatory powers like the Fishery Council to manage these waters, and the Antiquities Act, which presidents can use to set aside large areas of wilderness for immediate protection. Both aim to protect, but it's a slow process to navigate the bureaucracy of local regulatory agencies to address unsustainable fishing and resource practices. And while the councils create management plans, they already rely on federal agencies like NOAA to vet and enforce them. The Antiquities Act does overrule local management plans, but offers swift and expansive protection. But without local expertise, the designation could cause deeper schisms within the fishing community and harm their respect for regulations. So what happens if Trump does roll back this area's designation as a national monument? It could be that local fisheries protected effectively from overfishing and drilling, but it also risks endangering a precious part of the ocean for marine life and humans alike. One thing is certain, while a lot of these creatures in their underwater cathedrals are out of sight and out of reach, it's worth saying that there's something beautiful beneath the murkiness of our New
5: England waters. Even if I never go back out there again, having this place protected again is a gift to the American people.
0: Next up, we have Seth Manukin talking to a recent Undark contributor who wrote a piece on substance abuse disorders. Seth is a journalist, author, and director of MIT's graduate program in science writing. Take it away, Seth.
1: It is my absolute pleasure to welcome to the Undark podcast this month, Courtney Harris-Bond, uh, a freelance reporter and writer who has written for any number of publications, um, including the Philadelphia Inquirer, uh, Newsworks, the Broad Street Review. Um, She's joining us this month to talk about her recent piece uh, in Undark on medication assisted treatment for substance use disorders, um, a piece that was written as part of her Rosalind Carter Fellowship uh, for Mental Health Journalism. Courtney, welcome to the podcast.
6: Thanks so much for having me.
1: So I wanted to start just by asking you for for listeners who might not be familiar with the term, what exactly is uh, medically assisted treatment?
6: So medically assisted treatment, also known as medication assisted treatment, is a series of medications that um, People addicted to opioids um, can use under a doctor's supervision to help them stabilize. Um, They don't get high off of them if they use them correctly as prescribed. Um, It can help cut their cravings and reduce their chance of overdose and then enable them to start, um, for instance, therapy and, and the process of recovery. So I guess the best
1: known medication assisted treatment, the one that probably people might have heard of is is methadone, is that correct?
6: Yes, methadone was um, synthesized by German scientists during World War II uh, as a substitute for morphine. So it's been around for a really long time. And um, when veterans were coming back from Vietnam, a lot of them were addicted to, heroin and um, methadone was methadone clinics sprung up all over the country to to help them and so
1: first of all how would someone take methadone and 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 second what would be the difference between taking methadone and and taking heroin
6: okay so yeah methadone you have to report to a clinic daily usually depending on the jurisdiction and the status of your recovery like where you are in your recovery and uh person reports to the clinic in the morning first thing, um, gets their dose of methadone and sometimes participates in groups at the clinic and then goes to work or about their daily lives. Methadone can be abused for sure and it can be sold on the streets but it's pretty hard to get it out of clinics usually. And um, heroin is a street drug so it's you know bought and sold on the streets and people use it to get high. Whereas usually people are using methadone to try to stabilize their lives.
1: I have a substance use disorder uh, with heroin no longer using. But uh, I know from personal experience with methadone that it it doesn't give you the same type of high that, that heroin does, and in fact, when you're using it in a clinic, essentially one of the effects it has because of the size of the molecules is it, it blocks the effects of heroin. So if you are using methadone, um, it's not only that you don't need to then score heroin to satisfy your cravings, but actually using heroin for the most part doesn't have the effect of getting you more high.
6: That's a really important point. I'm glad you brought that up. And it also helps um, people uh, stave off you know, dope sickness so that they're not getting ill on a daily basis because they're going through withdrawal.
1: For methadone, I think certainly my sense of methadone clinics um, is that they oftentimes have a stigma attached to them. In addition to, as you said, in, in many jurisdictions, it being something that where you need to literally report first thing in the morning every day. Has that been a barrier to people seeking out that type of medication assisted treatment?
6: I think it really has. Um, I think that for some people methadone is great because their lives are so unstable and it provides a structure that they don't have in their lives otherwise. So reporting, having to report to a clinic every morning is actually a very positive thing. Alternatively, there are people who, um, you know, have young children and need to get to work early in the morning and it becomes a huge barrier um, to them to have to go daily.
1: You talk a lot in this piece about different types of medication assisted treatment that have been really developed and put into use more recently. Can you talk a little bit about those?
6: Sure. So Suboxone, I think, is the main one that I focused on in this piece. It combines uh, buprenorphine that activates some opiate receptors and naloxone that blocks um, sort of the effects of heroin or the euf- euphoria that people experience on heroin. So it helps cut cravings and ideally prevent with, you know, the chance of overdose.
1: Yeah, and, and how long has that been used and, and that combination been used for treatment?
6: Yeah, so Suboxone was uh, developed by a British pharmaceutical company, I think it came out in Europe in 2006 and in the States in 2010. So it's a newer um, drug uh, and uh, certainly during the opioid crisis it's become, you know, sort of the go-to medication for people looking for maintenance. There is also vivitrol, which usually comes as a once a month shot. Um, for whatever reason it's not as popular, not used as often, sometimes with incarceration um, populations, incarcerated populations. Um, it's used upon release to, to try to um, help the person who has been experiencing incarceration um, you know, prevent relapse. So Vivitrol, I think one thing I've heard anecdotally about it is that it's thick and quite painful to to get the shot.
1: And one of the things I found really fascinating about your piece is that there now is this growing body of evidence that medication-assisted treatment, oftentimes in conjunction with uh, some behavioral therapy, um, is one of the more effective, if not the most effective tool we have in, in combating substance use disorders, at the same time, it seems that from your reporting, it's not being universally embraced. Can you can you talk a little bit about that?
6: Oh, sure. So I think um, the treatment model in this country has been dominated for many decades by um, the 12 step uh, model, and that usually emphasizes abstinence from all drugs and alcohol. Um, understandably, Um, and some 12-step programs or groups, I should say, look at medication-assisted treatment um, as treating one drug for another or methadone as like liquid handcuffs is a common sort of phrase that they use. Um, So there's a lot of stigma against it in a lot of 12-step programs, but I do think that the tide is shifting on that, and I think that there are more and more 12-step groups that are... um, welcoming people who are on you know methadone suboxone vivitrol and i think that's a very positive development and i think we're going to see more of that in the future
1: yeah and just to unpack that a little bit i mean one of the things that i think is so fascinating about substance use disorder treatment is you know exactly that point that you raised that the treatment model in healthcare settings in this country has been so Intimately connected with the 12 step model and its a program obviously that has proven to be Very helpful for a lot of people because of the fact that 12-step programs are all self-governing It is a system for which it can be hard to get data in terms of recovery rates There is not a lot of good information about how effective 12-step programs are, and yet it still has been used even in healthcare settings as the primary model.
6: I think that you're exactly right. A huge issue has been there's no data that's easily accessible uh, about uh, the success rates of 12-step programs. One of the most interesting things for me in reporting this piece was speaking to the Hazleton betty Ford Foundation because they have traditionally been a 12-step program and in recent years they have had to really revamp and revise how they look at their model and protocols and they've embraced medication assisted treatment um, as an option for um, clients seeking help at their at their um, locations
1: and Hazelton betty ford is is that's a series of inpatient um clinics to to treat substance use disorders is that is that right
6: yeah, that's correct. It's based in Minnesota, but um, there are locations throughout the country.
1: Did they talk at all about what caused that change for them to start to embrace medication-assisted treatment more as a model?
6: Yeah, well, they did say that it was a big battle internally, that it was a huge hurdle to overcome. Um, there were you know, a lot of staff that were very resistant to embracing MAT or medication-assisted treatment. Um, But I think that with the proportions of people dying from overdose deaths, from opioid use disorder, um, they just could no longer ignore the evidence supporting that this was something they needed to to really offer their clients.
1: The fact that even within these healthcare settings you have that resistance, to me it really spoke to what we referenced, the stigmatization, because you would never have a situation where say someone was prescribed an antidepressant and a healthcare worker is saying well they're not really getting treated if they're taking an antidepressant unless they can do this entirely through behavioral therapy then that treatment or that recovery is is not real and yet that still does seem to be an attitude sometimes when as soon as you put drugs into the equation drugs or alcohol into the equation despite the fact that For decades, we've known that substance use disorders, alcohol use disorders are a medical issue, the same as depression, the the same as any other type of medical issue.
6: Yeah, that's correct. And I think that um, one thing I would say is that the tide has really shifted over the past couple of decades, probably since Prozac came out. toward people using antidepressants, anti-anxiety medications. I think there used to be a lot more prejudicial attitudes against people using those drugs as well. So maybe the silver lining here is that um, the tide will shift similarly with medication assisted treatment for opioid use disorder, and that there'll be less and less stigma against it as time goes on.
1: Now, you you did um, a huge amount of reporting for this and spoke with a lot of people who are struggling with these issues, people who have tried different types of medication-assisted treatment. Can you tell me a, a little bit about the reporting process and also what initially got you interested in this story?
6: Yeah, so I'll start with your latter question. Um, I personally have struggled a lot with anxiety and depression throughout my life. And I think when you go through so much suffering yourself, it kind of opens up your um, capacity for empathy and your interest in sort of examining other forms of suffering, at least for me it did. And um, so when I got the opportunity to apply for the Rosalind Carter Fellowship for Mental Health Journalism, Kensington, Philadelphia, is a hotbed of um, opioid use disorder and and drug use, and always has been for decades. It's known as the Badlands, and the city was making a big push to clear um, El Campamento, which was along the Conrail rail tracks. It was a big Uh, drug use haven, and um, there was a huge amount of controversy about it. This was two summers ago. And I had done some reporting about that and was very um, uh, drawn in by it. And so when I applied for the fellowship, I decided to shape my proposal around you know, examining medication assisted treatment as a possible solution to or as a possible cure, you know, way to help people get on to the path toward recovery.
1: So for people who might not be familiar with it, um, can you explain what the Carter, what the Rosalind Carter Mental Health Journalism Fellowships are? What do they allow you to do? What are they designed for?
6: Oh, yeah, that's a wonderful question. It's a very special program. Um, The goal is to help reporters cover behavioral health and reduce stigma around mental illness. They give you a $10,000 stipend and a year for a year's worth of work. It's just a wonderful opportunity. If you're interested in uh, behavioral health reporting, I would encourage anyone to apply for this.
1: You mentioned your own issues with, with anxiety and depression. That's something that you've written about as well. What is that experience like about opening yourself up and, and writing about your own vulnerability, about making yourself the subject of your own reporting?
6: Yeah, it's been fascinating. I've had f- some conflicting feelings about it, not so much about sharing personal information, but about, as a journalist, be making myself the subject of the story. Um, but I think that I've gotten to a point in my middle age where I feel no shame about anything anymore. And I think there's so little written about mental illness and in, in the general, you know, Media that it's very important to to in any way we can sort of raise the discussion about this, and so I made the conscious decision um, in the past two years to start writing about my own struggles with anxiety and depression.
1: This project, it sounds like the the was the culmination of your of your Carter um, fellowship. I noticed that along with your very beautiful writing, there were a series of of very striking uh, black and white photographs by a photographer named Jeffrey Stockbridge. Was this something that the two of you set out to work on together? Or how did that partnership come about?
6: So Jeffrey Stockbridge um, spent probably uh, seven, eight years on Kensington Avenue, photographing portraits of people and recording their stories and transcribing them. And he has a great blog called Kensington Blues. Um, I contacted him during the summer, two summers ago, when the city was clearing El Campamento and said, would you like to collaborate on a story or a series of stories? And he said, absolutely. And that began our collaboration. Then when I applied for the fellowship, I asked him if I shared some of my stipend with him, if he would be willing to sort of accompany me on my reporting to take photographs and then we ended up um sort of making in addition to just jeffrey taking photographs and me reporting and writing um we ended up co-producing a series of documentary shorts about the opioid crisis in philadelphia
1: and and where can uh where can listeners find those
6: so we've just um uploaded them to youtube uh the name of the series is called Embedded in the Badlands. They're pretty com- compelling. I would just give a trigger warning. In some of them, there there is some pretty explicit um, drug use and intravenous um, heroin use and fentanyl use. So watchers should be aware and it's certainly not appropriate for children. Do you know what project you're working on next? Yes, I've actually been working <laughs> On another very long form project for the past um, year plus, um, in an incarceration setting with an individual who has been in and out of prison and jail for his entire adult life, and I I just sort of fell into meeting him when I was reporting on some medication assisted treatment in one of the city's jails, and um, he you know I gave him my number. We talk almost every day. I've met with him on a number of occasions. He's been in and out of jail a couple of times since I've known him. He's now in a treatment um, setting for his substance use disorder and mental illness. And um, so my goal is to write a book proposal about this. And part of the story is about my sort of relationship with him um, and my personal struggles as a journalist with boundaries.
1: That sounds fascinating. I wish you all the luck. I can't wait to read that. and. Anything else that you're working on? Again, this was a really beautifully written piece, a really important piece. Courtney harris thank you so much for joining us uh, this month on the Undark podcast. And uh, I hope we get a chance to talk to you again.
6: Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
0: That's all on Dark Listeners. We're produced by Lydia Chain. Music is by the Undark team, and music in Daniel Hens's piece was by Poddington Bear. Special thanks to Grant Dean, Oscar Glavatsky, and Julian Chapu for providing us with the sound clips of glaciers and bubbles for my segment. I'm your host, Kash Patel. Talk to you next month.